0: Hello, this is Bill Curley.
1: And Holly Hudley.
0: And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of
1: St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Ordinary Life.
0: So, good morning. Good
1: morning. Almost now. I not think morning. I
0: would. Uh, well, it, it is where I am morning, late morning. <laughs> I think I would like to start today with a confession.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, let me um hold on. Let me get my robe on. It's okay.
0: on. All right. Um You know we're beginning Sunday this uh, deep dive into the Gospel of John and I'm doing it for a variety of reasons.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: and maybe that's one of the things that we could make this podcast about, but um I have never, this is my confession. I have known about the writings of Evelyn Underwood for decades, mm-hmm. underhill, I'm sorry. And I've never read anything by her. Okay. And so today, I started reading her massive book on mysticism.
1: Uh-huh. uh-huh.
0: It is not an easy read. But I thought maybe reading that would give me some help in trying to articulate why I want to delve into this subject. And the shorthand answer to that is that um, I want what Meister Eckhart found. Mm. And she quotes him a lot just in the first few pages of her book. Huh. But, of course, she's quoting from the German. I mean, yeah. she's quite a scholar. She was quite a scholar. She's dead now. But well, have you ever heard anything about her?
1: Well, that's what I was going to say. Just even as you're talking and you have this confession that sounded so dramatic, I'm like, oh, I don't even know who she is. So
0: <laughs> so I'll oh, well, suppose... I'll hear your confession then. Okay. Um...
1: <laughs> So my uh, confession is that I don't even know who Evelyn Underhill is until you just, I had to Google it while you were talking.
0: <laughs> yeah, she's uh, She is probably one of the great authorities on mysticism in the modern Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I don't think Cyprian Smith is, a, is a, um, an authority on mysticism. He's an authority on Eckhart, but not on mysticism a- a- at any rate. We're going to jump into John, and one of the things I want to do is correct some of the misperceptions that people have about John. John's been one of the most misused books in the entire Christian collection. For one thing, it's contributed powerfully to anti-Semitism,
2: yeah.
0: and, um, because John seems to go after the Jews. But you have to understand that when John uses the phrase the Jews in his writing. He himself was a Jew, Mm -hmm. and he was referring to the Jews in the synagogue that kicked the John community out because of their tenacity and holding on to the Jesus teachings in a way. So he wasn't against the Jews in a Jewish sense, but in an anti-Semitic sense.
1: Well, it seems that... um, Janine community had a sort of placelessness, you know, that, um, oh, I'm thinking of two things. One is I'm thinking about refugees who seek shelter um, in different homelands and that that feeling of placelessness. I still identify, let's say, as Afghan, but I have to be Afghan in this new context. And so what does that mean? Um, So John probably, so identified as being Jewish, but learning to be Jewish in this other context of mm-hmm. the sort of Jesus community. And then I thought about our, uh, many of our friends who <laughs> took the walk across the street, um, from one church home to another, not too long ago, because of feeling a sense of placelessness in a, in the church that they were part of deciding to be, um, Less inclusive to certain communities, and then coming to St. Paul's because of its statement around inclusion of those communities. So, you know, I think that um, those pieces of our identity—being Jewish, being Afghan, being, you know, a certain religious order—we don't ever really lose, but but if we are to grow, we have to learn how to expand them.
0: So you bring up a very good point, and that is that two of the key things that might mark what we could find as relevant from John is the importance of voluntary displacement Mm
2: -hmm. and
0: voluntary downward mobility because Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the ways that we can identify with the, the people that Jesus was most interested in.
1: Yeah, there's. I'm thinking a lot about that displacement and what I'm calling unbelonging, even as I am trying to wrap my mind around writing my dissertation. Um, uh, The more that I grapple with this kind of idea of, is it possible to liberate ourselves, and by ourselves, I mean white folks from, from white supremacy? this sort of water that we swim in or a culture that values white bodies over all others. If we mm-hmm. are to liberate ourselves from that as white people, then we have to be able to go through a period of unbelonging or voluntary right. displacement, right? right. So, um, and I, I think of this, like being curled up your, in your bed in a dark room And then all of a sudden dawn comes and there's like a shard of light that comes in your room and all you want to do is stay in the dark (laughs) and pull the covers over your, your head but as the light becomes more pervasive and it dissipates through the room. It just becomes light, you know it's you're no longer sort of shocked or surprised by it. that's the sort of visual that I keep having around this is that moment of transition between darkness and lightness is always shocking. But once we learn to sort of hold both, then the transition becomes a little easier.
0: Yep. So um, John is so different from all the other gospels in terms of content as Mm -hmm. well,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. because he has no birth story and, um John Shelby Spong is of the opinion that the book we call the Gospel of John in the in the Christian collection was actually written by four different authors. Mm-hmm. Um it certainly has a lot of textual problems if you look at the uh, evolution of the text over the over the century, where scribes put some things in and took some things out and created different endings and so forth. But I think it's going to be um, kind of fascinating to get into this and, and um, talk about it, you know? I mean, I think that when we get to, if we embrace what John Shelby Spong says about the metaphorical, allegorical, metaphorical is probably a better, better word or parabolic nature of John, the, the figures in John, like Nicodemus and Lazarus and Mary uh, of Magdala uh, and Judas, uh, spawn contends are fictional characters.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it makes you. Boy, that's
0: sure going to jar the sensibilities of a lot of church going people.
1: For sure. And, you know, there's. <laughs> it raises all kinds of questions about what we say about Jesus too. You know, what have we fictionalized about Jesus? Um, one of, one of the, I, I talk about this book all, all the time, but the Edward Edinger book that had such a big impact on me was the a, a, a Jungian analysis of the, of the Christ story. And that's not the title of it, but it is about that. And that, Christ or Jesus essentially is also a metaphor for our own individuation, which doesn't mean. So it's kind of holding the both- andness that Jesus is a historical figure and he's a metaphor. <laughs>
0: right. Uh, right. You know, like, and we have those characters in American mythology as well. Yeah. Um, you know, um, George Washington would be such. And- mm-hmm you know, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. David yeah. yeah. Crockett,
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was it was just so funny. Like I, I, two things I'm listening to the book, how the word is passed. I think, um, Josh shared that book with you by Clint Smith. He's a new Orleans writer
2: and
0: right.
1: poet and, and listening to it is really remarkable, but he, his whole, I think goal with this book is not to, um, you know, we, we've we learned a very slanted type of history in our culture, and it goes back to what I was just saying, that it's, it's prioritized the white body over all others. And so it's wanted to make that sort of story of whiteness look as good as possible. Um, and so it frames things like the way that Native Americans were treated and enslavement as like necessary, you know, and even Thomas Jefferson wrote that it was necessary to have enslavement to Christianize these savages from Africa. They are benefiting from this process, right? So he wrote some of the most, what we would think of as abhorrent things today. But what happened is that that writing and what he believed became sort of a metaphor, a way that, that framed the creation of our whole society. And so what Clint Smith is doing is is not eradicating the truth of, of some of these figures or the history that the beneficial history of some of these figures, but he's also he's saying, and there's this other aspect to it, right? He's really encouraging the reader to hold both truths in their hand and to wrestle a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> to be mm-hmm. in that in that transition between dark and light so that neither one um, is totally shocking. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the same thing with religious literacy is unpacking the metaphors that we thought were actual or literal (laughs) and saying they aren't.
0: So I I think that what we're gonna do um, uh, as we go forward is that at least for the first few weeks I'm going to carry the um, biblical religious literacy part, and you're uh, either going to scoff at it or I'll
1: just sit there and eat popcorn and be like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh,
0: step in with it, with how we can make this relevant for people who are attending. Because I, I know, um, and, and you've already read part of what I've written, but I'm going to make a deal with people, that if they will tolerate my wanting to get into the religious biblical literacy part, we'll reward them with something that really will contribute to their own sense of liberation and growth and and ways that we can make a difference. And God knows we're living in a cultural context right now that is as hurt hurting and hurtful as any i can remember in my lifetime
2: yeah
0: you know the the earth is crying out for the earth herself is crying out for help and um i have talked to more physicians in the last two weeks about how discouraged and um they are depleted of energy, and, and one, one said, you know, I hate to say this, but it's really hard for me to feel compassion for a lot of people that are coming in the hospital because they could have prevented it. Yeah. And this, this is a very compassionate guy, so. Yeah.
1: Well, there's yeah. a sort of feeling like we're doing this to ourselves. Um, so there's two things I would love to sort of introduce here. And one is just a thought. And um, I've, I've been reading this lovely little book by Padre Gotuuma in the shelter. And I'm reading
0: that too. Yeah, I love it.
1: I love it. I just, I think he's wonderful. Um, and he, right, he has this little bit about how he's grappling he's talking to a friend and he's grappling out loud about whether he should stay in this community that he sort of loves working for but that it's very hard to be a gay man in um, or whether he should move on and find something that's just a little more holistic and inclusive and his friend pauses and says you know it's amazing to me that you and padre great and i brace myself for some sort of false modesty like receiving a compliment and his friend finishes it by saying, make things as hard as possible for yourself.
2: And, uh.
1: and he, he was shocked to hear that. And I think that when I read that, I laughed out loud, but I also thought, gosh, that's what we're doing. We're making things as hard as possible for ourselves And it's really hard to get still in that because it's so easy to get wrapped up in the, in the hard and the difficulty and the, and the divisiveness and the voices that are yelling at us from all sides. And we are, we as a people are making things as hard as possible on ourselves. And I wonder if one of the things that we have to go through is go through the difficulty to get to the ease. You know, I don't think the ease just comes just because we ask for it, but it certainly comes when we stop fighting, when we just sort of, as you say, go limp a little bit and say, okay, what's needed here? What is the awakening?
0: Uh, you know that, um, so I want to go back to this need I have to justify what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um if if uh, my assumption at least it's what it's true for it's what I want to make true for my own life that um I have this opportunity now that I'm not dealing with the survival issues that I I can make a commitment to growth and um if you use like Ken Wilber's model of integrated psychological growth or even some of the ones that were put forward by uh, Richard Rohr or, or others. Um, Most of us, I think most people get comfortably situated around developmental level four. Mm. And we know that there are other developmental levels, five and six. And we, admire people who are in them, but I think sometimes we're scared to do the work to move in that direction. And um, Richard Rohr says, there's no way to go from one developmental level to another without experiencing uh, disorientation, disintegration, death of, of some sort. And you don't just casually wander from one developmental area into another. Usually you get there by some crisis. Or by having a spiritual practice,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, you certainly, as I've heard Rohr say before, you can't get in an airplane at level one and fly to level six. Right. You have to yeah. go through. And so, as a person who's probably at four myself, and I read the writings of Meister Ma- Eckhart and people who've written about him, like in the Book of Secrets, which is such a wonderful little book. Yeah. And. I aspire to have that kind of mind, to, yeah. to be able to be the kind of person that Meister Eckhart was, that Thomas Merton was, that, mm-hmm. you know, these other these other people that we quote all the time, but I feel like they live in a land that we ha- we don't inhabit.
1: That's right. Well, you know, some, you, you're, you're referencing sort of the spiral dynamics perspective, but in moral development, which, as you recall, is developed by Lawrence Kohlberg and then I think made better by Carol Gilligan. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually thinks that people can sort of slide along in this kind of morality. You know, we 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 can, and and I also think of racism like this too. Like we can do something highly ethical, highly moral, um, defend someone's right to belong who historically doesn't belong. And then we can get in our car and, and, you know, raise our, shake our fist at the person in front of us and call them names. And so our, our ethical continuum is not constant. You know, the way that we behave morally is not constant. Uh, say in, in anybody who does, who writes around the work of anti-racism is Ibram Kendi is one of them who says, you know, we're not always racist and we're not always anti-racist. Like you can be explicitly anti-racist in one moment and then do something completely unconscious that is um, racist, right? And mm-hmm. so so even though we may transcend and include levels, we're constantly fluctuating in our sort of ethical behavior, right? We may understand that there's a place to get at level four differently than we did at level two, but we're not. We're we're still fluctuating, and in, in our growth. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that this is you know this is why we need wisdom teachers, right? This is why we need voices like Meister Eckhart and Thomas Merton, and as you mentioned, I'm assuming Evelyn Underhill. Um, Sarah Grant, you know, these people who, who understood something, even if they also knew that they weren't always there. Like I bet Thomas Merton called people names under his breath from time to time (laughs) or had bad thoughts about, you know, I mean it's just inevitable that we fluctuate too. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Are you finding information in mystical Christianity that's being useful
1: oh yeah I am I'm actually it's funny um I'm about I'm about the same sort of like halfway to two-thirds mark in both the Spong book and Sanford's book and I'm actually wanting to read more the mystical Christianity book at this point I Mm -hmm. I think it's I, I think because it is um it's a bit more dynamic for me. Uh, I, I was saying to you the other day that I thought that Spong still had this kind of um, <laughs> languaging. And you so eloquently said, well, and he's writing in this Christian context. So of course he's trying to put it in the Christian context and in that sort of God language that we know. But I get this picture that Spong is still sort of seeing, trying to even spell out Jesus as the vessel between um between sacred and humane or profane whereas i think that i read in sanford more that that the integration of sacred and profane Mm -hmm. um you know i i i I think that if we're really going to challenge ourselves to think to think non-dually which is in itself not a possible thing to do you can't think Mm -hmm. (laughs) non-dually but um it is to, or to have non-dual mind is is a, is a complete integration of body and spirit. We cannot uh, prize spirit over body.
0: Right, you know? and I, I I think that Spong and Sanford are so different in their orientation. Mm-hmm. Spong is primarily a biblical scholar with a commitment to retranslate and rethink Form a theology that he thinks has gone wrong within the Christian church.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Sandford, on the other hand, is primarily a psychologist and Jungian analyst Mm -hmm. who is interested in finding the interior meaning of the teachings uh, found, the the teachings of Jesus as expressed, for example, in the Gospel of John. And both of them make a case, although I think Sanford makes a much better case for the fact that that worldview that John and Jesus lived in, so radically different than ours,
2: mm-hmm. that it's
0: really hard for us to grasp how their cosmology, which made perfect sense to them and doesn't to us, in that cosmology, the things that they said and believed made perfect sense. Right. Yeah, can and you, and also as, as I said in in class on Sunday, we we have to keep in mind that the people to whom both Jesus and John spoke and uh, were writing were really 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 different than our sociological grouping.
1: Absolutely, and that's what I want. That was exactly what I was about to ask. Um, can you sketch for us just a little bit of that sort of social political context here? Um, I keep picturing. A sort of nation or area divided in four, <laughs> um, and it may be even further than that. But could you paint that picture a little bit?
0: Well, you, you mean the economics k- kind of situation?
1: Yeah, that. And, you know, we have like the Syrians who kind of became the Syrians after being excommunicated in some ways or pushed mm-hmm. out of Jerusalem, right? Um mm-hmm. So how did all of those factions come? And we have the Pharisees, and we have the Greeks, and, you know, or the Romans, and, and, and then we have still the, the strong traditional Jewish population. Um, there, there was a lot of division and a lot of fighting over whose identity got to control the land, if you will, is, is what I can
0: gather. Well, that was what the big struggles were all about, who control the land. Yeah. And then they, the political entities that struggle were tribal entities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the time of Jesus, actually before Jesus, the Jewish identity got separated from the land. And so the Jews uh, had to separate themselves in identity from all the other people and they did that primarily by diet and by the right of circumcision
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know so that Jews didn't associate with other people and they had all these laws to make sure that they even though they didn't have a land to give them tribal identity they could find identity in who they associated with who they married what they ate and and that sort of thing And Mm -hmm. so you have this group of Jews, the Pharisees that come along to make sure that all the rules and regulations uh, pertaining to what it meant to be a Jew were actually um, enforced. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to include Samaritans. Mm -hmm. I'm going to cross over into this territory. I'm going to talk to this woman.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm
0: going to do these things. These are all metaphors for Jesus saying, I'm going to not adhere to these tribal loyalties. I'm right. going to open right. the table to everybody.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's the reason that the the really fanatical Jews, I don't mean they were doctrinal fanatics. They were fanatics about being Jewish. Right. We, we cannot lose our identity. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, good Lord, people in our culture certainly know what that's about. You know, we don't want to lose our identity as white people. We don't want to lose our identity as Republicans or Democrats or as Americans and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that mentality hasn't gone away. But the, the Jews were also at this time very subjected to Roman law and to Roman taxes. Mm-hmm. and um, they hated it. And so Jesus rebelled against that system too. And he just was a, was a troublemaker yeah. everywhere he yeah. went. And we'll talk about about some of that. When I don't think this is in John. I'm pretty sure it isn't. But when Jesus goes in the other gospels, and he's walking about, and he calls these guys who are fishing away from their fishing to follow him, What he's doing is destroying the family and he's destroying the economic system of the day. And so we've sort of romanticized and idealized what it means to get up and follow Jesus when, boy, he didn't make any friends with families when he was doing what he was doing.
1: That's right. Well, I mean, even just looking at the prodigal son that we just got through with, right? If that is the sort of like essential metaphor of the family structure and how it was completely blown apart in that one narrative. You know, there's, uh, and, you know, I mean, I guess what just, uh, what I just sort of got in my mind is I was talking about the need to unbelong as part of growth, which is incredibly hard. Um, I know for myself, when I feel my insecurities crop up so much when I don't feel like I belong. It is, it is mm-hmm. a, it's a real challenge for me to stay present in my own being when, um, when I feel socially excluded. Um, and Jesus really is an example of someone who could unbelong. You know, he, it doesn't seem like he was too tied to any one particular part of either his identity or anyone else's identity in order to say, like, you're complete as you are. I'm complete as I am. And that's a really beautiful illustration of someone who could sort of traverse these boundaries, Mm -hmm. even though he was protested and stopped and killed (laughs) for traversing these boundaries, um, he still did it. Uh And it's also a good metaphor for like the risk of traversing boundaries. Sometimes we are literally excommunicated from the family when we traverse those boundaries, when when we leave that system.
0: I think one of the hardest things for a lot of people who are in the the demographic that we speak to in ordinary life, which is usually people who have a, quote, Christian background, who probably gone to church at some point in their life, gone to Christian churches, one sort or another sometime in their life. Um, It's hard for us to keep in mind that Jesus was not a Christian. Yeah. He had no desire to start a religion and yeah. the religion that has been started in his name has done a pretty good job at not adhering to his teachings. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. At, at creating a tighter boundary, you know, creating mm-hmm. a tighter, tighter club of who's in and who's out. And then of course that's what we're trying to sort of push against a little bit. Um, And, you know, the awareness is, if I'm looking into myself as I'm doing any of this reading of the analysis of Jesus' teachings is, oh, how do I still operate like that? How do I still operate inside Mm -hmm. of these boundaries? Um, Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I think that's another difference between Spong and Sanford is that Spong wanted to help save the institution.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. and
0: and I can understand that. I, yeah. he has a deep love and loyalty to the institution. Um, he's argues like and Richard War would be another one that would be like this, I think
2: mm-hmm. that
0: he can criticize the institution by remaining in it in it and being a loving loving critic.
2: Right. Sanford
0: had no, no interest in that at all. Sanford mm-hmm. was interested in the transformation of the individual who then, could participate in a community of like-minded people right. wherever they were, right? And however he found them. So Sanford was not an institutional guy. He was, by the way, an Episcopal priest,
1: right? Yeah. But
0: he left his. I don't think he ever ran out to his ordination, but he left being an active parish minister. He went to Zurich and got trained um, as a union analyst. Not by Jung himself, but by one of Jung's really strong partners. Mm -hmm. Can't remember the name right now. All this is on Wikipedia, I'm sure. (laughs) You can go and and look it up. But um, I discovered Sanford G really early in my psychological training because I wanted to put religion and psychology or spirituality and psychology together in Sanford, wrote a wonderful little bit, book called The Kingdom Within. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And
0: um, I stole some of his language early on in doing Mind and Spirit and then in Ordinary Life to talk about the journey that we're on as a journey inward.
1: Yeah. It, it's so interesting. I think that there are many... Um, people who in different ways have been served by various institutions very well. And the context from which I speak is, as a white upper middle class person in America, institutions have served me well, you know, they've sort of been for me. And so that institutional position gets really comfortable. It, it, it And I can imagine that that could be some of where someone like Spong and or Richard Ward comes from, is that that. The institution is comfortable for them. They haven't had to necessarily fight to belong, and so maybe the 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 duty that they can provide is, as you say, pushing from the inside and saying, "Well, can we make the, Can we can we open these boundaries up a little bit more so that more people feel protected by the institution?" And then you have the voices that are saying, Mm-mm, "Destroy the institution," which I think is Jesus's voice. I, I I don't know. Am I misunderstanding that? I think he was like. Not an institutional
0: guy. Well, I can argue both sides of that coin. I mean, the institution of organized Christianity in uh, America has done a lot of harm, but it's also done a tremendous amount of good. I'm thinking just about hospitals and higher education. Um, The church has been responsible for starting most hospitals in this country originally. Mm -hmm and jewish jewish congregations have as well um certainly orphanages started by christian congregations we can band together i'm I'm thinking um about you know this afghan crisis that we are in right now and the desire that you have i have and a lot of people that i've talked to have about how can we help in the resettlement of refugees some afghan refugees are coming to houston
2: mm-hmm. and
0: um, mm-hmm. So we can we can band together in institutional ways, like through interfaith ministries, to do far more than we can do individually. Yeah, for
1: sure, and I I, you're exactly right. And so a lot of times when we, uh, I've sort of thought about it in this way is um, when we come up in an institution, regardless of what it is, and and at some point inevitable in life, I think as we begin to question that institution, this is individuation, this is how we develop our identity, et cetera. Um, Some of us fully leave the institution, but then come back to it in a new way and can participate in it with that sort of fluidity of boundaries, knowing that the institution doesn't define us, that we can traverse the edges of it, but still stay, stay within it if it's comfortable, or if it is, if it serves some purpose in our spiritual and um, personal life. But um, I think the whole point may be that if we are to stay in the institution to come back to it in a new way.
0: Yeah. I yeah. want to say one other thing before we go, yep. and I'm, I'm going to have to go. But we, and, and I'll address this in the first three, four paragraphs on Sunday, we are facing an insurmountable problem in trying to talk about something that cannot be put into language.
1: That's right.
0: So, yeah. uh, I told you that the title that I suggested for this Sunday is um, Crossing Over into Sacred Mystery. And mm-hmm. I stole that title from the subtitle of a really great but very dense commentary on the Gospel of John that we're, I'm not going to recommend that anybody read. Um, the subtitle of the gospel uh, of this commentary is "Crossing Over into God," and th- the minute I saw it, I thought of Saint Teresa of Avila's statement when she said, "You cannot enter a room you're already in."
1: Yeah.
0: And so uh, you can't someone. cross over. <laughs> yeah. However, however, the Gospel of John is crammed. With one example of another, where Jesus says and does, he says, come, let's cross over. Yeah. He goes over the lake into another territory. Let's go over into nice. the region of. Oh, he's always crossing boundaries. I got to go.
1: righty All right. See you soon. We'll pull it all together
2: by Sunday. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.